0: Hello, I'm Claire White, and joining me is Kyle Willoughby. Hello. And this is Dragons, Sexy Robots and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. We are here to discuss new nerd creations, how they were made, and explore the roots of the characters and the stories. And today, we have another birthday episode for Kyle.
1: Yes, we do. I'm so excited. Happy birthday,
0: Kyle. Thanks,
1: Claire. Thank you very much.
0: And we are discussing Kyle's pick because he got to pick a topic from the year that he was born, which is?
1: Uh, It is the book Hyperion. Which
0: was written in?
1: 1980, figure it out. (laughs) 1989, (laughs) 1989.
0: And what did you pass up for Hyperion, Oh,
1: my gosh. Well, I passed up um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Mm -hmm. which was hard. But we did a Nathan Drake episode, which covered some Indiana Jones stuff. So. You know, there, there. Of course, there's always more you could talk about in that vein of like adventure and, and history. But um, we did something similar. I also passed up. Uh, the, yeah. The Little Mermaid. The Little Mermaid. I was
0: trying to bribe Kyle. <laughs> I was like, I'll let you have a saying what I pick for my birthday if uh, t- you let me have a saying what you <laughs> yeah. pick for your birthday. And
1: I do love the Little Mermaid. Uh, it holds a very special place in my heart. Uh, one of the first times I ever got drunk, I sat singing the "Look at This Stuff, Isn't It Neat" song with my older brother for like an hour. Apparently, um, but no. I don't
0: think most people have that story. I know.
1: It's I just know. like a
0: handful of nerdy teenage girls <laughs> <laughs> or twenty-one-year-old girls, I should say.
1: It's a great, it's a great movie, but uh, I instead wanted to saddle you and our producer James with reading yet another long, small print
0: <laughs>
1: science fiction <laughs>
0: book. As you do.
1: (laughs) As I do. As I want to do. And it was Hyperion by Dan Simmons.
0: Which is about...
1: So here's a little synopsis, quick synopsis of Hyperion if you haven't read it. Hyperion is the Hugo and Locus Award winning science fiction novel written by Dan Simmons and published in the beautiful year of 1989. Hell yeah. Uh, Hyperion tells the story of seven pilgrims on a mysterious pilgrimage to the planet Hyperion on the eve of an interstellar war. The pilgrimage is for the Church of the Final Atonement, which is also known as the Cult of the Shrike. Um, And the point of this pilgrimage is to see the Shrike, which is a legendary, sometimes mythical monster that is 10 feet tall, has four arms, and is covered in spikes. The one, one pilgrim will get their wish granted. The others will be impaled by the Shrike on his Tree of Pain to suffer for eternity. It's a little scary. (laughs) None of the pilgrims belong to this church, and they all have a mysterious and tragic reason for being there. Um, And the story unfolds as the characters make their way to the time tombs, which is the home of the Shrike, each one telling the story of what brought them to this deadly journey. Um, The stories are as follows. It starts with the priest's tale, the soldier's tale, then the poet's tale, the scholar's tale, the detective's tale, and the consul's tale. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about the structure of Hyperion, specifically, because it's one of my favorite things in literature. I, I realized this particular this structure. Yeah, the this idea. Of, okay. And uh, Claire, what will you be telling? I'm to talk about?
0: about Dan Simmons. He's an interesting fellow.
1: Yeah, he wrote this really pivotal, or maybe not pivotal, but very like well-regarded science fiction novel Blotted. that a lot of people f- have forgotten about. You know, and, th- and not a lot of people know his name
0: and we can talk about that he has some theories as to why that is
1: (laughs) (laughs) i should be more rich and famous than i am (sighs) or i could be i could be okay anyway
0: go ahead kyle take us away i'm excited
1: so i love this book i think it's beautifully written and it has a really intriguing interesting cast of characters this book is also so crammed full of references and ideas that it's hard to pick one thing to sit down and focus on for my segment. Like when I when I said I want to do Hyperion, I was so excited to get to reread it and for you guys to read it. And then when I finished it, I was like, "What the hell am I going to talk about? <laughs> this is uh, there's way too much in this." Yeah,
0: there's a lot of different themes.
1: Yeah, for a short segment, um, this book is just chock full of references, both literary and scientific. Like the faster than light engines used for travel are named after Stephen Hawking. Mm-hmm. The Jesuit priest, paleontologist, and philosopher, philosopher Teilhard de Chardin, is constantly referenced by one of the characters, um, and the book is really reminiscent of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, and it is also, even on top of that, a giant love letter to the work of the young poet and writer John Keats. It also delves heavily into religion, mythology, technology, uh, evolution, and capitalism.
0: Just yeah, a, there's a lot going there's on. There's just
1: a lot going on, because it's three, you know, or it's it's six separate books kind of all in all one.
0: All in one other separate book.
1: Exactly. The six books kind of tell the story of the seventh. So like I said, one of my favorite things about this book is its structure, this group of novellas that help drive a main story forward. And it, this doing it this way really helps inform the reader of the world and the history of humanity's travels in space, and, you know, these seven complete strangers on a mysterious and deadly pilgrimage it's all really cool they all have different reasons for being there and they agree each in turn to tell their own story of their connection to the cult um and it, it happens each night at dinner time one of the pilgrims tells their story now this plot device of right, writing a story this way or a group of st- grouping a, a group of stories this way is known as a frame narrative or a frame story um and it's kind of what i want to focus on for my segment today which is the history of the frame narrative Ooh. and where that kind of came from and just some f- previous frame narratives. So, according to the, the Britannica, uh, a frame narrative is defined as being an overall unifying story within which one or more tales are related. So, one overarching story, and then some mini-stories in the middle that, that relate back to that. In this single story, the opening and closing constitutes a frame in the cyclical frame story, that is a story in which several tales are related, some frames are externally imposed and only loosely bind the diversified stories together.
0: So give an example of
1: them. So an example of the the really easy example of a frame narrative is 1001 Nights, the Arabian right. Nights collection, where it starts off with this Persian king whose wife cheats on him and he then decides that all women suck and he executes his wife and... And he starts, every night he gets a virgin who he marries, has sex with, and then kills the next day. And it gets to a point where the vizier, uh, the advisor of this king, is running out of women to come marry, marry the Persian king. And the, viz- the vizier's daughter volunteers. She's like, look, I'll do it. I have a plan. And she goes, meets the king, and instead of them hooking up, she tells him a story but doesn't finish the story. And that way the king wants to, like, come back in here every night. And so 1001 Arabian Nights is 1001 stories that she tells this king every night to stop from being beheaded. And at the very end of all those stories, the king realizes that he shouldn't behead women. That <laughs> <laughs> Just because his wife cheated on him doesn't mean that they're all bad. And he marries uh, the storyteller whose name is Scheherazade. So that's one of the like that's the the one of the classic classic examples. But there's other ones. Like mm-hmm. Neil Gaiman's Sandman is a frame narrative. The Princess Bride is a frame narrative.
0: Right. Yeah. The
1: grandfather is reading the story to his kid and it's, you know, it's kind of being broken up, but this the the original story is this kid is sick and his grandfather came over to tell him a story. Right. So frame stories are like rushing nesting dolls. You have one story inside of a story that can then have another story inside of that and so on and so forth. And you can get really redundant with it if you want. Uh, This one one book I read about but I haven't read uh, by Donald Westlake – is called No Story, and it's a parody of frame stories in which a series of narrators start to tell stories, each of which contains a narrator who starts to tell a story, culminating in a narrator who announces that there will be no story.
0: <laughs> That's so literary pretentious. It's so literary
1: pretentious, but I thought it was, I thought it you was know, pretty funny. It's funny. funny. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> uh, essentially, it's a frame story without a story to be framed. Now, frame narrators have been around since Forever. The oft-cited oldest frame tale comes from ancient Egypt, and it is very old. Yeah, this has been around for a long time. The oldest copy of this story uh, that has been found dates back to sometime between the 15th and 18th century BCE. So that's 3,500 to 3,800 years ago. Super old, yeah. But some archaeologists think that the story itself was written even earlier, like before two thousand yeah. BCE. I so, guess it's
0: an easy way to like, gather interest in the story. Is like, oh, there's this narrator,
1: yeah, who's and telling he's it.
0: relating this story. Exactly. And also, then it's not you telling the yeah. story, so yeah. you kind of you exempt yourself of any fault. Well,
1: another thing, and I think this is what 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 frame why frame stories are so cool is be, and why they're so old is because originally, you know, even predating writing, humans sat around and told each other stories in a group setting to pass time for entertainment. So when you when people started writing things down and they started writing stories, it makes sense that a story that they would write would sort of mm-hmm. echo that yeah, structure of totally. a group like the story you're writing is a group of people sitting telling a story. (laughs) Um, So this Egyptian story from possibly 4,000 years ago is known today as the Westcar Papyrus. And it is about the sons of the pharaoh Khufu, telling him five stories of magic and miracles performed by magicians. And Khufu, who the Greeks knew as uh, Heops, was a pharaoh during Egypt's golden age around 2500 BCE. So he was a pharaoh. He was like legendary to the people who wrote The West Papyrus even, like this this pharaoh. Mm -hmm. Now, Egypt wasn't the only ancient place that frame stories were being recorded. In India, two of the most famous frame stories ever written came out, and they were the Mahabharata and the Ramayana. The the Mahabharata Mahabharata is one of the oldest Indian Sanskrit epics, um, and it contains the Bhagavad Gita within it. Uh, it is also one of the most important stories of India and is a major part of the Hindu religion. And if, for those of you who don't know, the Bhagavad Gita is like a very important Hindu text where it talks about Vishnu uh, talking to a commander of an army who is about to go to war with his family and telling him why it's okay. Like a lot, mm. a lot of tenets of Hinduism are contained in the Bhagavad Gita, which is then contained, or contained within the Mahabharata. And it concerns a great war for the throne of Kuru between two sets of cousins. The whole Mahabharata does. It is often cited as the longest epic poem ever written, and it is put on the same level as the works of Homer, William Shakespeare, as well as the Bible and the Quran. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's insanely long. I've read the I've read the Bhagavad Gita, and I read a fantasy series that was like a fantasy adaptation of the Mahabharata okay. called Govinda, which is pretty cool. And uh, and actually, part of the Mahabharata is. A version of the Ramayana, which is another old Indian Sanskrit text, which I also have read. This isn't me just showing up. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: your birthday, Kyle. It's my birthday. You can
1: I read all these things. Talk about
0: all the great works that you've read, and I am impressed.
1: And uh, so the Mahabharata was was uh, written around 400 BCE, uh, but was likely told long before that, dating back to the 8th or ninth centuries BCE. So in the 14th century, not BCE, you know, a- a- CE or C-D, AD, wh- yeah. whichever you prefer, Giovanni Boccaccio wrote a book called The Decameron, and The Decameron is another one of these famous frame narratives. It's kind of the Italian
0: I've heard of the Canterbury Decameron. Tales.
1: Yeah. So The Decameron is a is a story that uh, they think that Giovanni Boccaccio based it off his own experiences when the plague hit Florence. But it's a it's a story of seven women and three men who flee Florence from the plague, and they they hole up in this this abandoned villa, and they're there for for two weeks, and they tell each other a story every night. Mm. And it's it, apparently that happened to Giovanni Boccaccio, so they think that like that was him just kind of of being like, oh, this is kind of a cool idea. Now stories that he tells in the Decameron also are reminiscent or are retreads of stories from 1001 nights oh. <laughs> which are also in turn retreads of stories from an even older indian work
0: oh wow
1: yeah so it's it's funny how these things just get passed around and passed right. around and keep going forward
0: there's actually no completely new work
1: there's no completely new work it's true it's So, I would be extremely remiss not to talk a little bit about Chaucer and the Canterbury Tales, from which Hyperion borrows a lot of its structure, Mm -hmm. but honestly, not too much else. Like, as far as tone and themes go, Hyperion and the Canterbury Tales are very, very different. Um, So, the Canterbury Tales were written sometime in the late 14th century, uh, and they follow a large group of pilgrims on their way to Canterbury to visit the shrine of St. Thomas Becket. So, right there, like, that relates directly back to Hyperion, where it's a group of pilgrims. And
0: one of them will get a wish granted, and the rest of them will be hung on a tree and be tortured forever? Uh,
1: not hung on a tree, impaled on a oh, tree. Me. <laughs> yes, yes, that's exactly what happens in the Canterbury Tales. No! <laughs> it's much lighter. It's much more lighthearted. So the frame structure of the stories is a storytelling contest, which is a lot more fun Ooh. than getting impaled on a tree of spikes. Each of the pilgrims would tell two stories on the way to Canterbury and two on the way back. And the winner of the story contest would be awarded a free meal at the Tabard Inn. And that was the, you know, and that's those what are you the were stakes. excited for. Those are the stakes. So Chaucer never actually finished the Canterbury Tales. He only completed uh, 24 of them. There were supposed to be 120. Now, the Canterbury Tales were hugely influential and are still popular today. today and you probably had to read them or maybe part of them in school.
0: I definitely had to read them. But I have completely forgotten them. Yeah,
1: me too. I vaguely remember the wife of Bath's story and how she was like...
0: the midwi- Is it the midwife of Bath or is it the wife of Bath?
1: I thought it was the wife of Bath.
0: It probably is. But that's the thing, like it was so long ago yeah. and I don't yeah. think I enjoyed it that much. So yeah. it never stuck in my mind.
1: And I read him in Catholic school and there was like the Miller's story we weren't supposed to read. I remember that being a thing. Really? Because he told these raunchy stories. And that was <laughs> one of the things about the Canterbury <laughs> Tales that was really cool. It was the types of stories that were told. Because in, in, in this work, Chaucer wrote these really raunchy, low stories, quotes in low, that like the Miller would tell. Right next to these quote high stories that were told by knights and priests that mm. were about God and religion and honor, next to the Wife of Bath who had had five hus- husbands and was like would brag about how good she was right. in bed. That is,
0: the, it's not the Midwife of Bath.
1: <laughs> so that was that was one of the cool. There's a lot of cool things about Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, but that was one of the the things I found interesting that sort of relates back to to Hyperion and Simmons' novel in that each tale is. In a way, like a mildly different subgenre of science fiction. Mm-hmm,
0: definitely, you know, that's what the, he was trying to do. Yeah,
1: the detective's tale is definitely like a, a cyber cyberpunk type, and the priest's tale is kind of a, a horror sci-fi horror type, and then the the soldier's tale is a military, military sci-fi. Yeah. And and I I thought that was pretty cool. I think what really fa- fascinates me about frame tales, though, is is how natural they feel. And just to me, there's something about a group of people sitting around a meal or fire, mm-hmm. telling stories, that just feels really, really primal. Like the way that humans were right. supposed to exchange information. You know, this is the way we started out telling stories, and and it, it goes to show how incredibly important stories are to us. Um, and that's just my little talk on frame tales. That was
0: really cool, Kyle. Thank you. Claire. And I do like that that it actually is the original way we told stories.
1: Yeah. And that when you're writing them down, it makes sense that you, you're going to have a narrator. It's like it's these group of people telling right. stories. Or
0: whenever you – when you start a movie and the narrator's like, back in my day, yeah. Yeah. it feels really right. Yeah,
1: it does. It does. Anyway, So Claire. I'm going to talk
0: about the man who wrote this, Mr. This Dan wonderful, Simmons. wonderful, book. He was born in East Peoria, Illinois in 1948. According to Mr. Simmons, he always wanted to be a writer but it wasn't actually something that was encouraged in his childhood. When he was caught writing as a kid, he was always scolded by teachers for wasting time. He also mentions that he went to a Catholic school taught by nuns in the 50s and 60s. <laughs> yes. But he believes that this was actually a good thing, that writing should be an adverse activity and that authority, that authority figures don't like and that yeah, improves your writing. I bet
1: that's kind of true.
0: <laughs> he graduated from Wabash College with a degree in English and a Phi Beta Kappa, which is a Nationwide Honor Society Award for Creativity in Fiction, Journalism, and Art. And with all of this... He became an elementary school teacher. Really? Yeah. Th-
1: Do you think he was reading them his kindergartners test drafts of Hyperion?
0: Actually, I'll get to that. But he did something like that. And, and
1: then kids, the know, shrike the impaled sh- the poet upon the tree.
0: I don't know if he was doing that. And he was teaching in like fourth grade, from okay, what I can gather. Okay, I but that. it seems like he was a really good teacher. He oh, won cool. awards from the Colorado Education Association and was a finalist for the Colorado Teacher of the Year. Oh, good for him. And while he was teaching, he was was writing short stories and submitting them to magazines to not much success. In the early 80s, he told his wife uh, if he didn't get encouragement from the Denver Writers Conference, he was going to quit trying to get published and focus completely on teaching. Well, at this conference, he met Harlan Ellison, Ugh. who is a fascinating character, certainly is. sci-fi legend. Yeah. I hope we get to talk about him one day on the podcast. And Ellison told him that his writing was good and not to give up, and also told him how hard a life as a writer is.
1: Ellison wrote some pretty horrifying sci-fi yes, stories did. himself. <laughs> Terrifying.
0: Ellison, with Simmons' permission, entered Simmons' short story, The River Sticks Runs Upstream, in a contest for beginning writers. And Simmons won. Then his first novel, Song of Kai, was published, and it won the World Fantasy Award. Oh, wow. And it was the first time an author's first novel had won that award.
1: I haven't read that one, actually, nor even heard of it.
0: He, it's kind of um, like a horror story. It's yeah. about India, and I think it's Calcutta. I read a brief summary of it online. Okay. And deep in Calcutta, there's this weird cult that's yeah. killing people. Gotcha. He thinks it's more of a horror story than a fantasy story. So he always says, Oh, and then I won this fantasy award, even though it wasn't really a fantasy story. But after that, he was able to start writing full time. His next novel, Carry in Comfort, was a horror book and it won the Bram Stoker Award, which is for superior achievement in dark fantasy and horror writing. Hyperion was his first science fiction novel. He wrote Hyperion and the Fall of Hyperion in 18 months because he and his wife wanted to buy a house. And his agent said if he wrote two sci fi novels, he could get an advance he needed for the down payment. No
1: way. Mm-hmm.
0: The book was pretty well received. Like you mentioned, it won the Hugo Award, the Locus Award, which is the award the Locus Sci Fi and Fantasy Mag gives out. Magazine, I should say, not mag. Was nominated for a bunch of others, and today is on NPR's top one hundred science fiction fantasy books. Around fifty one, I think I saw. It might be. It might have moved. I think this article was from like two thousand thirteen. That blows my
1: reference. That blows my mind. He wrote this in eighteen months. Like, yeah, both of them. That like it's so in depth and like full of stuff. You think like I. I was like, oh, he must have researched this for years. Well,
0: it had been an idea stewing in his head. He says, he, it was, though it was his first time writing sci-fi, he had loved it for years, and he told the six different stories so he could celebrate the sci-fi genre by writing six different styles. Gotcha. The character of the Shrike, who everyone's going on this pilgrimage to meet, came up in a poem he was writing for fun in the 70s. And then he included that character in a wandering fantasy tale that he told to his fourth graders. The Whoa, next year, really? He told the shrike? This, yes. He, it was just part of his tale. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, he told the same story the next year to his sixth graders. And he said the kids loved all the characters in his stories, but the shrike was the one that they were most transfixed by.
1: Yeah, because he's giant. He's got four arms. He's full of spikes. Shrikes are also a type of bird that impales insects and small animals oh, on I didn't thorns, know that. On, oh, on thorn bushes you, to Dan kill them. Simmons, yeah, it's
0: good for you. After he wrote Hyperion, he knew there was more, so he waited four years and wrote... And I'm going to ask you to pronounce this.
1: I always pronounced it Endymion.
0: Endymion. And the rise of Endymion. But he hates sequels. And he mm. has vowed that these are all the novels set in the Hyperion world. He will write no more. Now, Dan Simmons is also a man who will not be confined to a genre. (laughs) He has written books in horror, sci-fi, fantasy, suspense, historical fiction, mystery, and you could even go on. Yeah. Because his books do fit into
1: a bunch of different
0: genres and categories. He believes that writing in all these different genres has not helped his career in terms of making money and gaining status. Really? Yes, he says as soon as he gets a small amount of readers in one genre, he moves to the next. And he does this because he made a vow to himself in 1982 that if he had any success, he would not stick to just one form of writing, that he would write what moves him. He says he wouldn't be interested in writing if he didn't continue to switch up genres, and that he gets bored writing easily, so if something seems too difficult, he wants to try it. Um, and he says that if he were just to write a bunch of books set in the Hyperion world, he could be really famous and rich. But he he doesn't he hates when authors do that. He thinks I that mean, the quality <laughs> of the work goes down, and he will not do it.
1: This kind of confirms a theory I always had about Dan Simmons and one of the characters in Hyperion, Martin Salinas.
0: Mm, yeah, no.
1: Who is the poet? Yeah, he's like, kind of Dan Simmons. He, I think he's kind of Dan Simmons.
0: Dan Simmons was hard to look up. As far as writing Hyperion goes, because it was written, I was going to say so long ago, nineteen
1: eighty nine, and
0: the internet wasn't around them, so there's no articles, yeah. with interviews posted on the internet yeah. about his writing of Hyperion. And
1: it wasn't the Dark Knight Returns, which was like, this which has huge, become this pivotal
0: classic, even, must read yeah. if you're anything into comics, yeah, at all into comics. Even though I, I think say.
1: Hyperion's wonderful.
0: It is wonderful. I think it gets lost in the sci-fi shuffle because it's not as pivotal. We can yeah. get more into that in
1: yeah, in opinion opinions. Sorry, sorry.
0: But what I was going to say, I was looking up articles that were from the early 2000s, which he did talk a little bit about Hyperion, but he was talking a lot about how hard it is for very popular writers to continue to turn out great works. And he compares them to, and this is a quote, a star that uses up its hydrogen and begins burning the heavier gases of its own waste byproducts, bloating and cooling and dying as it does so. <laughs>
1: that and is... that's
0: a salon piece <laughs> by Dorman Schindler called The Outsider.
1: That is, um, that is what stars do eventually. It's mm-hmm. where they bloat up into red giants.
0: <laughs> he thinks most great writers run out of material, that writing is actually a young man's game, and that once you've achieved a certain amount of success you can only write about, like, cocktail parties and soirees with famous people that you don't necessarily experience the real world anymore. Or you don't have that, you know, gritty real world experience that allows you to create this masterpiece. Yeah,
1: or even that like young man or poor man's drive or poor young woman, poor woman's drive of like, oh, I got to get this this thing out.
0: Right. And you have the energy when you're young yeah. to, to just write and yeah. rewrite. He points out that the word novel comes from the French word new, but he believes for himself that switching up genres has helped him avoid this trap
1: yeah I see that's a it's a funny thing to talk about when he talks about switching up genres because all the Dan Simmons books I've read have been kind of sci-fi horror books
0: <laughs> right I've only read Hyperion, so I can't really speak to that but yeah. when you when he's being interviewed by people, they always talk about all the different styles yeah. he writes and I know one of his last books was a about Charles Dickens, but from the point of view of his fr- very close friend, kind of sycophant, who gotcha. f- was an unreliable drug addict narrator gotcha. that went everywhere with him. Yeah. So I there might be some horror in there. It sounds right for some horror, yeah. but it's still more historical fiction-y than, say,
1: Hyperion, yeah, yeah, for say sure. Like science fiction.
0: So I know what you're all asking. Hyperion, lauded by the literary—well, at least the sci-fi and fantasy literary community— why isn't it a movie? Yeah, aren't you wondering?
1: I mean, I'm hoping Bradley Bradley Cooper apparently working on it or something. He sure
0: is. According to a Barnes and Noble article by Andrew Liptick, there have been there has been interest in making it a film since it was published. Apparently, Martin Scorsese was attached to direct it what? around 2003 with Leo. With Leo, I 2003, Leo. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I don't know who Leo would have played. I
1: imagine they would have put him as the console, but I don't know.
0: Oh, yeah, totally. Scott Derrickson, who made The Day the Earth Stood Still, was going to direct it for Warner Brothers, but the project never made it out of pre-production. Then Bradley Cooper was apparently turned on to the series by a friend, and he then, after reading it, wanted to write and direct an adaptation. In 2015, Sci-Fi announced it intended to produce a mini a miniseries adaptation of Hyperion with Bradley Cooper as a producer. At this point, he'd been trying to produce Hyperion for about four years. Oh, wow. It's still in process. So, so I was maybe. looking up upcoming projects for sci-fi and fantasy, and yeah. they haven't canceled it. it. It's still in the works, so hopefully yeah. it gets made As far as Dan Simmons goes, though, recently his book The Terror was made into a series on AMC. It's about a crew trying to charter the Northwest Passage in the
1: 1800s. Yeah, it looks really cool. It it
0: looks cool. It definitely has horror elements to it. I mean, it's called The Terror. (laughs) Does it have some horror
1: elements in (laughs) there?
0: I think it's in his heart. Dan Simmons is a horror writer.
1: I I totally agree, definitely. That's what it seems to me anyway.
0: Going through his work.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And then his dystopian novel flashback is also being made into a TV series, quote unquote. Oh, really? But I feel like dystopian novels usually have some horror in there too, even if it's not overt horror. Yeah. And Hyperion definitely had elements of horror. Oh,
1: Hyperion had... Definitely had some horror elements, for sure.
0: um, But, yeah, that's my segment. That's Dan Simmons. He's an interesting guy. He's very talented.
1: He does seem like an interesting guy. I I know so little about him, despite... Like, having been a fan of a lot of his work for a long time. You know
0: it was really sad, though? And mm. I haven't read anything about this. I read a fairly recent NPR article reviewing one of his recent books saying that he just has gotten too political. Oh, gone, You know, really? it, his books have just become political rants. Yeah. Which, you know, he talks about these traps that writers fall into.
1: I feel like Orson Scott Card did a similar thing. Mm-hmm,
0: where they just... Start going on about the problems that they think are happening yeah, in the world.
1: You become kind of crazy old man.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I don't know. I haven't read the book. NPR doesn't speak for me, but it kind of made me sad after reading all of these interviews with him where he tries, he talks about how he tries to continue to keep things fresh and not fall into the trap of writing the same thing or writing stale writing, yeah, writing yeah. stale stories. That yeah. then I read this review that says hey, this book is just a political rant and there are yeah. moments of brilliance, but.
1: Yeah, you know, it just goes
0: off onto tangents. No, but who knows? Like who, yeah. I said, haven't read it. So uh, obviously, you like the book, Kyle?
1: I love this book. It's it's like a holds kind of a special place in my heart. I used to see it in my house lying around, and I always thought it was really freaky looking. It is my, freaky looking. Yeah, the cover is kind of scary. The, the
0: picture of a sh- the shrike.
1: Yeah, it's on which the which James doesn't think
0: is the strike.
1: We think he's right. We think he's wrong. Yeah. But there's also like a field with like a ship kind of floating through this field. Field of
0: grass. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And and I remember always being like, oh, that's weird. That's interesting. And I didn't actually read it until I moved out of my parents' house. Like, even though my parents, at least my mom, I know, was was a fan of the book. So I didn't read it until I was an adult. But when I did, I was like, wow, how did I miss this? Like, how did I? There must have been so many
0: pretty covers with. A lot of pages yeah. in your house growing there, up.
1: There were a lot. <laughs> there definitely <laughs> were a lot. Thanks, Mom.
0: <laughs> Those are my favorite kind of books.
1: Pretty yeah, covers. <laughs> pretty covers. So I am I was definitely a fan. What did you think of it, Claire? I
0: loved it. I mean, you say, oh, I saddled you with another huge book. I don't remember ever not liking a book that you've said we need to Aww. read this for the podcast. And I'm so grateful that you that you chose this as much as I would have enjoyed talking about,
1: about the, Little the Little Mermaid.
0: Mermaid. <laughs> <laughs> I think Disney's making a live action version of they it are. or something we'll get on so it. we can get back we'll to it. We'll get on
1: it, it eventually. Um,
0: but no, I loved it. I I wish I could reread it because it's one of those things that every story explains the world that we're in more More and more more. yeah and so i know that there are things that i missed in the earlier stories that i after reading the latter stories would understand or would be able to then put into this world in a different way exactly yeah but it's a long book and life is short so i don't know when i'll get back to reading it and i want to read the the second one
1: totally It, it, it ends on a big cliffhanger that's one of the things that people will fault it like oh the ending is such bs because it it ends on such a cliffhanger i like that but i i liked it too another thing i i I read of like faults that people had with it is that it drops you into the story with no context but i like that too i like learning about the world as you go through it hearing these stories of of the different characters
0: i feel like that's every fantasy and sci-fi novel yeah, yeah, it's, you know it takes hyperion takes longer for you to develop the context yeah but on the other hand i feel like when you start reading a fantasy or sci-fi novel you kind of go in knowing that you are not gonna understand everything right yeah. away and that you're gonna yeah. be putting together a lot of clues as the book yeah. goes on and maybe going back and rereading some passages. Exactly. Because you understand them now. Yeah.
1: You know that you're not you're you're playing catch up learning about the world mm-hmm. when you jump into a sci fi or fantasy book. I I really like it and I love the format of frame narrative. And I wanted to ask Claire if you if you can think of any like specific frame narrative stories that that you really enjoy,
0: um, *Wuthering Heights*.
1: Which I've actually never read. What what is the frame of *Wuthering Heights*? Like, what's who's telling the story? It's told
0: by Lockwood, who is a, a well. Basically, he's a wealthy young man, visits Heathcliff, and he becomes ill, and so he's telling the housekeeper the story of visiting him.
1: Oh, okay, I so, gotcha.
0: Titanic is one I can think of, though it's not yeah, one of my Titanic, favorites.
1: Titanic definitely. When I when I saw Princess Bride, looking, oh, up, yeah. looking up frame stories, I was like, oh my goodness, this is such a great frame story.
0: This is a great frame story. <laughs> like
1: uh, old old grandpa coming in and telling the story, and you get to follow along, and it it helps. Like one one thing I was reading about the why frame stories are good, especially now, is that if you are in kind of a fantasy or or maybe a quote unquote ridiculous world. It can break it up and break you out of it and mm-hmm. and make make it a little bit more painless going in and out, right of this world because it's like hold on that's ridiculous oh they're gonna kiss and it's like it helps helps you, you play with a, a trope that would be tired.
0: Well, also kind of relieves some of the tension. Yeah, because you know that the narrator survives.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Because uh, I am thinking of Frankenstein,
1: which I am reading right now.
0: But it relieved some of my stress while reading it because I know that at least. Frankenstein has to live long enough to tell the narrator yeah, this tale. Exactly,
1: exactly. That's true, and like that happens in the Princess Pride, Not to harp back on this movie too much, but it's a
0: great movie. But when
1: the when you know Princess Buttercup falls into the lake and the eels are about to get her, and and the kid's like, stop, stop, stop. They don't they don't get her, right? And he's like, would you not interrupt and let me tell the story? That's right. And then it goes into the voiceover and it's like the old grandpa being like. Those are the shrieking eels. <laughs> it's it's a it's a way to get people who maybe aren't as into fantasy mm-hmm. or sci-fi book into it.
0: One of your favorite books is a frame narrative. What? Ocean at the end of the lane. Ocean at the
1: end of the lane. Well, Neil, Ga- yeah, that's totally you're totally right. Neil Gaiman has a ton of frame narratives, and actually, I made a little list of of some of the ones I love here. Um, one of them is a short story from uh, Fragile Things. I don't know if you've oh. read it yet. October in the Chair.
0: I have. Oh, I love that one.
1: Where the the months are sitting around a campfire yes. arguing over whose turn it is to tell a story. Yes, yes. And finally it's decided that October gets to tell a story and he tells an, an October story. Uh,
0: yeah, I, I, that was one it, of my favorites it's in beautiful. Fragile Things. It's yeah.
1: beautiful. And another, like, I don't, do you remember reading On Fairy Stories, the J.R. Tolkien mm-hmm. essay? In On Fairy Stories, I don't remember this exactly, but I did when I was looking it up. He talks about how he doesn't like frame narratives because he thinks that they delegitimize fantasy, that they kind of take seriousness away from it.
0: Hmm, I can see that. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I think it depends on the frame narrative. I think in Princess Bride, it, def- it does it, take seriousness away from it, but it means to. But
1: it means to, and that's part of the fun Do of it. Do you think too.
0: that the frame story took away seriousness from Titanic? <laughs>
1: I've never seen Titanic.
0: Oh, you've never seen Titanic?
1: <laughs> no. Oh, wow. I know. I know. I'm such Next a James year for Cameron my fanboy oh, Titanic. <laughs> I'll wa- I mean, it's supposed to be great. I'll watch it.
0: It's fine. It's, it's fine. fine. I'm not even that big a fan of it. <laughs> like... I was obsessed with the, tit- with the Titanic when I was a kid, so it all it played into yeah, that obsession. Yeah, yeah. I can't believe you haven't seen Titanic.
1: I know. Wait, I know. what did
0: Jordan Ellis do? Tell us to say, I'm excited for you to see Titanic.
1: <laughs> I'm excited for me to see Titanic. That too. was my last days. episode. That was the last.
0: I'm celebrating you getting to see Titanic. Thank
1: you, Claire. Yeah. Thank you. Leo at his finest. It but,
0: kind of is.
1: But I wanted to ask you a little bit back to Hyperion. What is your favorite of the six stories in it?
0: Oh, that's hard. I think the consoles, maybe.
1: Consoles but it's also where cool. I was
0: able to piece together a lot of the world. He waits till the end, Dan Simmons, to really give you all of the nuggets that you've yeah. been collecting yeah. to piece this puzzle together. Yeah. So I, I really enjoyed the console story. And
1: it's funny because in between everyone telling their stories, you're looking at everything from the console's point of view. And he's talking about how like a lot of times he's thinking like. I'm not gonna tell them my right. story. Like blah, well, the blah, console blah. is
0: also the narrator of the quest of the quest. So exactly. when you meet all the characters in the beginning, you meet them through the console's eyes.
1: Yeah, and in his and he's the last story to tell. And when he gets to telling his story, it's like, okay, I guess I will tell everyone mine because yeah. theirs were all so incredible as well. I what's yours? I really love the priest's tale.
0: The it's, horror tale. The,
1: it's right up my alley. I'm and I love <laughs> I love that it was. That it opened the book. Like, that's the first oh, story yeah. you hear. It sucks you in. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, kind of Catholicism themes. And I was raised Catholic. I don't think it's disparaging of no, Catholicism. No, it's not. But it and is... And Dan
0: Simmons talks a lot about he has nothing against religion. Yeah. He does like to go after the people who use, use it, it in yeah. a bad way yeah. to maybe gain influence. Definitely. But he personally has nothing against religion.
1: Yeah. But it's a great little piece of horror fiction, The Priest's Tale. Yeah. The only, I I mean, I like them all a lot, honestly. The only, the one that I like the least, but I still think is a really good story is The Detectives.
0: Right, but it explains so much of the world. It does. That without that story, Hyperion wouldn't be as good because you wouldn't be able to piece everything together.
1: Definitely. And it's a little cyberpunk story about a Mm -hmm. detective, like in cityscapes and like jumping into the, the internet, essentially.
0: Yeah. I also wanted to ask, do you think that Hyperion doesn't get the attention it deserves because Dan Simmons switches genres so often when he writes books?
1: No, I don't. I don't agree with that. He would have a better perspective on it than I would, but I don't think so. I I think part of the reason maybe it doesn't get as much attention as it should is, like, it is—I love it. It is a little hoity-toity.
0: It's (laughs) hoity-toity. I also think— It's not necessarily pivotal. Yeah, you know when you think about great science fiction like Frankenstein and H.G. Wells and Asimov, they took the genre and really did something completely different with it. Like when I look at fantasy, George R. R. Martin made fantasy super gritty. Yeah. So even though you, he might not be the best writer, he changed the genre.
1: The Dark Knight Returns changed Changed comics.
0: comics. I don't think Hyperion necessarily changed change sci-fi. sci-fi. He's he's writing a love letter to sci-fi. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I I I can see that. I definitely agree with that. Like it didn't change sci-fi, but it's so beautifully written and it's so well and meticulously put together. Yeah. At least, seem it to my eye. It is. It seems really meticulous and on purpose, and like it's it. It looks like a thousand or a hundred thousand piece puzzle that just t- 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 you just put together perfectly.
0: You know who I think would really like Hyperion? Who? High fantasy fans.
1: Oh, definitely. Because.
0: To me, it feels almost more like a high fantasy book than a sci fi book. Yeah. Where it's this huge world. Yeah. And all these different facets that you're building. Yeah. Um, It reminded me more of that than sci fi books that I normally read. Because I feel like science fiction tends to be more linear. Yeah. When and in scope, maybe that's you've read more sci-fi than me, so I could be off on that. It
1: can be. Also, sci-fi is is more, and Hyperion is very technology focused. But I feel like a lot of sci-fi is also much more technology focused it and is. driven. And yeah. in Hyperion,
0: it's the, more about the world.
1: It's more about the world, and there is a lot of great science fiction or science and technology in it. But the place you're going to is this weird kind of magical place mm-hmm. that defies all science.
0: Yes, yes.
1: And that kind of lends itself more to fantasy, perhaps.
0: But yeah, we definitely, we love Hyperion. Yeah. Happy birthday, Kyle! Thank
1: you. Happy birthday to me. Yeah. Happy birthday to you as well, oh, Claire. Oh, thanks. Well,
0: it's past now. I know. I know. <laughs> My special day is over. It's, My special yeah. podcast is over.
1: <laughs> and also, I guess, happy Father's Day, right? Isn't that uh Oh, that's today. this episode is being released.
0: Yeah. <laughs> happy Father's Day. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm Claire White.
1: And I'm Kyle Willoughby.
0: And we are Dragons, Sexy Robots and Adventures, a Nerd Manual. Feel free to contact us on our website at dsrapodcast.com. We would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes. You can find the show on Twitter at DSRI Podcast. I can be found on Twitter at Along With Claire. That's C-L-A-I-R-E.
1: I I can be found at CLEX303. That's K-L-E-X-303.
0: And you can find our producer, James, at James Fowey Jr. That's James Fowey, F-O-U-H-E-Y-J-R, on Twitter. You can learn more about Hyperion on our Twitter and Facebook page, where, where we will post some of the articles we use to research this. Our producer, who... Does like seeing people impaled on trees. He's
1: got his very own miniature tree of pain right on his bedstand.
0: Is James Bowie.
1: <laughs> he, he, he pokes voodoo dolls onto it all the time. It's, ve- it's very disturbing.
0: <laughs> our logo is done by Detective Patty Hyland.
1: Detective Braun Lamia, Patty Hyland. And
0: our theme was composed by priest Pete Rowan.
1: But I feel like he's more of that salty poet. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's true. <laughs>
0: Once again, this is Dragon, Sexy Robots, and Adventures, a nerd manual. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks when we talk about The Incredibles 2. I know.
1: It's, the Incredibles 2, I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's it's Pixar's attempt at a science fiction horror mm-hmm. film for kids. So yes. It's very exciting.